All right. Welcome back to Journalistic Integrity. It is Tuesday, May 3rd. Got a great episode for you guys today. Going to go over a few of the NBA series, talk a little bit about Jordan Poole and how he has gotten to this point where he is dominating with the Warriors uh, in game one against the Grizzlies. He led the team in minutes, points, rebounds, and assists. So I'm going to go over his timeline for a few minutes. Going to go over the Bucks. Celtic series, Bucks push them around in game one, setting up for a really big game two for the Celtics. And then as well as what I saw from the Miami Heat last night against the Embiidless 76ers. But I want to start with NIL. And there's a lot of NIL takes out there. And if you say like on Twitter, I think NIL is going to change college football, you're automatically painted as a bad person and someone that doesn't want kids getting paid but I think you can say hey these players should be getting paid they should have been getting paid and they should be paid whatever anyone is willing to pay them but also say yeah this is probably going to change college sports um, for the better or for the worse and it depends on what school you root for and so here's the bad aspect of the NIL at first it started as hey all these Alabama and Georgia they're going to get the top recruits but then it was like they always get the top recruits. So now they're just paying them to come rather than them, them just coming or paying them under the table rather than just setting up an NIL deal up front. So not a huge change, right? But I think one aspect we did not see coming or being as significant as it is, is the transfer portal and teams basically paying to acquire players. So we look at Jordan Addison right now, a really good receiver out of pit, helped get Pickett drafted in the first round. It looks like he's going to go to USC and there's rumors of like $3 million of NIL deals set up for him at USC. So there's nothing wrong with what is happening. Addison wants to go to a better offense, better school for football, and make a ton of money. No one's going to blame him for that. And USC is saying, we've got this money. We've got these boosters. We want better players. So no one's doing anything wrong. But now it's setting the precedent of if a player has a really good year at not one of the top echelon schools, He's going to transfer to a place that can give him more money. And so you're not going to have these, you know, really good players that are carrying a team in college football at a school like Pitt or at some of these middle tier ACC schools or SEC or a really good quarterback at like a Washington. Once they have that really good season, they're going to transfer out and they're going to try and make as much as possible money as possible, which they should, which most of us would do but ultimately if you're one of these non-power top eight top ten programs with all this money it's really deflating feeling because whenever you feel yourself inching closer you've got you know a couple big high school recruits they're playing really well once you feel like you're getting close to that you're gonna have guys transfer away and lit out all the air in the program that you have built and it just stinks for these other programs no one's doing anything wrong, but it's just the way that it's going to work. A lot of these schools are just not going to have a chance anymore, despite their best efforts developing these three-star recruits into NFL prospects, they're going to leave, and they probably should. On the bright side of the NIL, we've got these power teams in the SEC, the Georgia and Alabama, and we saw in the most recent playoff the gap between them and everyone else, right? We saw the semifinals. Cincinnati gets crushed 
Michigan gets pummeled. And so they've really separated themselves from everyone else. So we'll throw Ohio State in there as well most years. And here's where it almost feels, despite all the players kind of converging on the same power schools, it's almost creating a more competitive field because we're going to have these players go to the big power programs that have been down recently, like a Miami, a Texas, and a USC. So these big powers are just going to be added to the mix of teams that can compete because they have the money to get the high school recruits, to get people in the transfer portal. The only problem would be if these power schools were also were the only ones that had all of this money. And so a lot of these mid-tier schools are going to lose their really good players. But what we're doing, adding these teams that aren't the best programs right now but have a ton of money, we're increasing the size of the pie of teams that can compete for championships. We see it with Miami, the billionaire guy with Life Wallet, Ruiz and his family paying everybody, basketball players, although Isaiah Wong seemed like he wanted out of that contract. That was an interesting story. We see it already with USC, Addison, Texas. They can't develop players. They get good players. They can't develop them. So maybe now in the transfer portal, they can pay for some developed players ready to go. So in terms of is this good for college football, I'm almost leaning yes, because we're going to see these traditional powers, these powers that bring eyeballs to the game in Oregon on the West Coast with the Nike money, the teams I mentioned earlier, they're now all back in the mix and can conceivably compete with these top SEC teams in the next few years. Okay, let's switch to some NBA and Jordan Poole. I want to focus on Jordan Poole and the Warriors for a few minutes. He really had his national coming out party in game one against the Grizzlies. I mentioned at the top, game one on the road, led the team in minutes, points with 31 rebounds and assists, eight and nine. And he it seemingly came out of nowhere. So I was looking through his timeline, how he got here. So I just want to run through that pretty quickly because he's got an interesting path here and we remember him at Michigan where he's there for two years his freshman year he didn't start any games and only averaged 12 minutes a game six points per game that's not usually how a you know star coming of star NBA player starts his NCAA career but remember that Michigan team made it to the national title game they lost to Villanova and he actually had a really big moment in the second round of the NCAA tournament in that run against Houston. They were down two points with four seconds left and guy from Michigan dribbles down, finds pool for like a 35 footer. And he does one of those where he shoots it, fading back, falls down. He was covered, drills it. And so big, once you see that shot by a freshman and it wasn't one of those game winners where it's like a tie game. If you miss it, it just goes to overtime. I think those are a lot different than if you make it, you win. But if you miss it, you lose. And that was that situation. So he hits a big three. Then sophomore year, he starts every game, increases across the board, um, 37% from three, 13 points per game. Then he gets drafted 28th overall by the Golden State Warriors. And that was in the 2019 draft uh, three years ago. In his rookie year, he struggled. He's up and down in the G League, only averaged eight points per game. 22 minutes a game, only 33% from the field, 28% from three. 
Then we go to the second year. Clay Thompson's out. So Jordan Poole, they've got these mix of shooting guards. They bring in Kelly Oubre Jr. They got Otto Porter, Pascal. They're trying to figure out who to play. So he plays a little more, 12 points per game, up to 35% from three. And then this past year is when he really took off. And we saw the you know how much better he got in college from freshman to sophomore year. Now we jump to this year's third year in the league, 45% from the field, 19 points per game, 36% from three, and he led the league in free throw percentage, 92.5%. Steph was at 92.3%, second in free throw percentage. That was the first time in 45 years that teammates have led the NBA in free throw percentage. But in the playoffs, he's taken it to an even higher level, 23 points per game, 56% from the field, okay? This is not like a DeAndre Jordan getting easy dunks. This is a guy, a shooting guard, playing some point guard that has to make these acrobatic layups, these tough threes. So 56% from the field, 49% from three. 49% and these threes that he's taking are not these open threes. These are dribble, step backs, guy in his face. Unbelievable. And, and he won them game one against the Grizzlies. Steph gets into foul trouble. Clay Thompson wasn't very good, and there's kind of a weird thing brewing where Jordan Poole is probably better than Clay at this point. Clay has lost more than a step on defense. John Morant was just hunting him out. If you saw the uh, mid to late fourth quarter, every single time Ja was calling on whoever Clay was guarding to come give him a screen, and so Clay would have to switch on him and just take him to the rim every single time. And he had the option of going after Steph or Poole, too. But Poole was amazing, the 31 points, and he's been lights out. And it's just amazing the Warriors, who have these incredible shooters, Steph and Clay, get one in the 29th pick of the draft, which we really see not a lot of good players come, you know, after like the 15th or 16th pick. Usually outside of like the top 20, 25, there's usually only one or two good players from the rest of the first round through the second round. And Jordan Poole is just awesome. At first, you know, I wasn't watching a ton of regular season games. So I was like, is this guy just a really good three-point shooter? He's a lot more than that. He can attack the rim. He's able to get to these layup positions. He's up and unders, really athletic. And he's just awesome to watch. And I can't believe the Warriors have another lights-out shooter on their team. But let's shift to a team that did not have any lights-out shooters in game one of the series. That is the Boston Celtics. And game one for the Celtics was, oh, wait, we're not playing the Nets anymore? Oh, wait, it's not Andre Drummond or Nick Claxton down low uh, defending the paint. You know, the Bucks, everyone's gone small. The Bucks have gone the opposite. And they, go, they have a huge front line when they go Giannis, Portis, and Brooke Lopez. There are no easy shots at the rim. And when they've got those three guys out there at the same time, they have the three tallest guys on the court. No one on the Celtics that they play is taller than those guys. And sometimes basketball really is as simple as we have taller guys. We're going to grab a lot of these rebounds and you're not going to have a lot of open shots close to the basket. And so what the Celtics did, they shot a ton of threes. They shot 50, 50 three pointers compared to the Bucks, 34 threes and the Bucks allow a lot of threes and the Celtics missed a lot of open threes. That's the one reason why I still have hope for the Celtics despite losing, you know, game one at home and really getting pushed around 
is the fact that there are several open threes. I mean, Jalen Brown was awful, and his three shot just looked really bad, missed a ton, um, made a couple late, but Jalen Brown, Tatum, and Smart were 13 of 42 from the field, 31%. Not going to do it, but overall, the real story of this game was the physicality of the Bucks, and we saw the Celtics against the Nets push around KD, be really physical with Kyrie, and then the Bucks are almost the polar opposite of that team where, yeah, maybe Giannis doesn't have quite the skill, offensive skill as KD, and maybe Drew Holiday doesn't have quite the ball handling and rim finishing as Kyrie. But the defense, the physicality, and the ability to drive and get to the rim is much, much better than those two. And I was thinking, like, I would rather have Giannis than KD, and I think most people would. But what duo would you rather have, KD and Kyrie or Drew Holiday and Giannis? And I think at this point, after seeing Kyrie and KD and just, I mean, what has Kyrie done in the playoffs since that Cleveland Cavaliers run or since he has not been with LeBron James? Not much. And the thing we underestimated with the Bucs coming into this was, you know, they've got the heart of a champion. I know that's like a cliche, but it really came through where they've got guys like Wesley Matthews, Pat Connaughton, that play really hard. Bobby Portis, who remember Bobby Portis took a much uh, smaller deal to stay with the Bucks. I think it was like two years, nine million, four and a half million a year. And, and he's much, you know, he's probably like a nine, 10 million a year type guy, much more valuable than that. But he wanted to stay with the Bucks. And this team was just extremely physical. They weren't pushing Giannis around. There's that video of Giannis posting up Tatum and Tatum trying to push him, but Tatum ends up being the guy that falls down and Giannis gets to the rim. Drew Holiday is becoming one of my favorite players and he's overshadowed by Giannis. We haven't even mentioned Middleton who's injured and looks like he's out for the series, but Drew Holiday is just an awesome player and he plays with this edge and this whole Bucks team plays with this edge where it's not like, hey, we're friends. You know, we saw Kyrie after getting swept by the Celtics. I mean, losing to a team four straight times is pretty brutal, pretty embarrassing, especially when you've got two of the most talented players in the league. And then he's laughing and dapping up and all that stuff. And I'm not asking asking him to like mean mug and be pissed, but Drew Holiday and Giannis, you can see they take it personal. Drew Holiday takes it personal against Marcus Smart. Well, here's just backing him down, backing down Celtics and, and just turning around and finishing at the rim. It's kind of like Colin Gillespie at Villanova when he has a smaller guard just backs him down and Drew Holiday just so tough and harasses the the Celtics ball handler on the other end doesn't let them get anything easy and it was like these it was just reminded me of like the Celtics net series but they traded places where Boston was like the Nets where they even had difficulty like throwing it in to Tatum at the elbow like those passes would get tipped and there'd be a run on the other end um but you know, after watching this series and after seeing Heat game one, it feels like this Bucks Celtics series is the Eastern Conference Finals because the Heat just don't look very good, especially on offense. They don't have a lot of creators, guys that can drive and create a shot for other people. Butler, you know, is their best at kind of getting in the paint, but he even looked kind of hesitant where he would have these, you know, elbow jump shots, these jumpers that you see Chris Paul take all the time when he's weaving through the lane. But Jimmy was like jumping in the air and passing it. And they got bailed out by a few hero deep threes. But the Sixers 
could have won this game. They were leading at halftime, and then Miami goes on a little run, and it gets out of hand. But this Heat team is not very impressive. They've got Strauss and Gabe Vincent. These players, they play these guys that just are not really that great of players. Just the Heat in general are not very deep. They're injury-prone. And for as good as Bam Adebayo is defensively and rebounding, his offensive game really hasn't progressed as much as you would like if you're a Heat fan. Like, can you really toss it to him on the elbow? And can he go, you know, two dribbles and score? I think Bam should actually be watching film on Embiid and see how he grew his game where he's got that fadeaway jumper on the baseline and do all these different things. But Bam is really limited to, you know, these alley-oop, pass, dunk, or if he gets it deep on an offensive rebound, put back. And I think his offensive game has to expand for this Heat team to win a championship. So tonight, game two, Bucks, Celtics. I think the Celtics win this one. They looked really bad game one, but I thought they missed a lot of open threes. And, you know, in some of these series, just the more urgent team, the team that has to win, the Celtics have to win. You can't win. You can't lose the first two games as the home team. And so I think the Celtics come out and we have a more aggressive Tatum. I think Ime Doka is a really good coach and he's going to have adjustments for that big Celtics front line and, I just think we see some Grant Williams corner threes, some Jason Tatum driving kick. I think it's going to be a lot of driving kick from Tatum, kicking it out to Smart, to Jalen Brown. I think some of those open threes go in. But, you know, the, the Bucks are just so impressed. Such an awesome, fun team to watch. And in the Western Conference, the series I wanted looks like it's got a pretty good chance of happening. That's the Suns, Warriors, Steph Curry, versus Chris Paul. They don't like each other. And the Suns, after a little scare against the Pelicans, look to be back on track uh, against the Mavericks from last night. So these conference finals, all these series, pretty good. And, you know, as bad as the NBA regular season, as boring as the regular season can be, the playoffs always deliver. All right, that's it for today's podcast. Be back in a few days. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll talk to you later. See ya.